Terry. Good morning, church. This is E plus one. One week after Easter. Easter is the main event. It's the mountaintop. But what do you do when you have to come down from the mountain? You still had to get up Monday morning, or if you were lucky and you got the Monday, you had to get up on top of life. Sunday was a seismic event. It it rocked the world. It rocked it literally. Among the descriptions of Easter morning was that it was cataclysmic. There was an earthquake that was, that was so powerful in its force that it actually shook the temple itself and tore the curtain in the middle of the temple from top to bottom. It, it wasn't just a physical quake. It was a cosmic quake. It completely overturned the order of the world and it brought into existence the beauty and power of the kingdom of God. But then Monday comes, and you've got to go back. And you wonder, did anything really change? I was in a hospital waiting room on Monday morning, just like I had been the week before. In a sense, everything changed. But sometimes the reality of life didn't. One of the things that does change as you look back at life through the lens of Easter is that the words of Jesus spoken before Good Friday and Easter take on a whole new dimension. The kind of trembles and rumbles that precede the main event. Uh, Jesus didn't walk blindly towards Calvary's hill. He walked with full intent knowing that this was a plan that would shake the world and change the future. And the stories and the teachings that he tells begin to point in that direction. And and they too are, well, they're seismic. They're explosive. Uh, we don't see them that way. They're familiar. They're they're tender. But, but the parables of Jesus, they're not just gentle bedtime stories. They have bite to them. There's elements of surprise and shock. They're more like grenades that Jesus lobs in there to disturb the status quo. In fact, the word parable itself, you'll remember if you've been journeying through the series with us, means to throw alongside. Jesus throws these little little bits of TNT into the world as a way of illustrating his teaching and as a way of saying something dramatic about the kingdom of God. And there are a few parables that are quite as familiar as the one we're going to look at today. In fact, the very reason that you know the word prodigal is because of this story of the prodigal son. Where else do you encounter that word anywhere in the English vocabulary? What we would like to do this morning is to take the parable, to throw it out there, and hope that it explodes with the force with which Jesus had intended it. And it was explosive in that first crowd. In order to do that, we have to do just a little bit of work in understanding what it is about the story that was so scandalous, to be able to hear it through the ears of those who heard it first, and to be able to identify what about it was just so unexpected, so reckless, so disturbing, and so profound. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, to turn your Bibles open to Luke, and the parable itself begins in verse 11. But before we get there, I want to introduce you to the first audience, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, It goes without saying that Jesus tells his stories 
to real flesh and blood people. This is not an imaginary crowd. It's not just to all of you out there in radio land. Luke tells us at the very beginning of chapter 15, have a look there in verses 1 and 2, that there was a crowd made up of four distinct groups of people. In verse 1 it says there were tax collectors there. Now again, tax collectors, that's not like CRA employees. I mean, as much as you may not have a great love affair with them, tax collectors in the first century were traitors to their people. They were collaborators with Rome. And remember that, that if you were part of the people of Israel, you were living under the oppressive burden of Rome. And these were the sellouts whose job it was to take about 40% of your income to skim a little bit off the top that they kept for themselves and to pass it on to Rome. These were persona non grata. They were not liked in the world. The other group that's there are described simply as sinners. And that's probably a collective term for the kind of people that you might go out of your way to avoid if you saw them on the street. Panhandlers, drug addicts, whatever it might be. These were the groups that tended to cluster around Jesus. And it was these two groups of people that made the other two groups very disturbed. In fact, they're described, these two groups, as a a crowd of people who were muttering. See there in verse 2, you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttering. The Pharisees first. Uh, This is a group who I think kind of get a bum rap today. We We tend to depict them as the enemies of all things, conniving with illegitimate religion. And that's really not their story. The the Pharisees came into existence about 150 years before Jesus. And their primary purpose was to preserve the identity, the faith, the culture of God's chosen people. Again, remember that, that if you were part of the nation of Israel, you had lived under one oppressive regime after another. And there was a great danger of being swallowed up by those massive cultures, Babylon and, and, and Rome and Greece. And so you have this group, these Pharisees, who wanted to maintain the identity, the purity, the significance of God's people. They were kind of like the religious equivalent of the CRTC. You know that group? Canadian Radio and Television Communications Board, whose primary purpose is to make sure that on our radio waves, on our television signals, in media, there is a certain amount of Canadian content that gets preserved so that Canada doesn't lose its sense of identity and soul and get swallowed up in the media giant that lives to the south. So they're the the religious CRTC. The last group that's there in the crowd is the scribes. These are the religion scholars. These are the thoughtful elite, the, the, the teachers, the educators who had grounded themselves in and studied and knew the word of God. That last two groups, those last two groups, Pharisees and scribes, they are muttering about the first two groups. Let's, uh, with that in mind, try and put ourselves somewhere in the crowd. I don't know whether you want to identify with one of those four or maybe you create a new group for yourself. But let's imagine ourselves there on that day long ago and listen to the story, the parable of the lost son. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, the younger one state, and so he divided his property between them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come to calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Most of us have stories of wanting to get out from under our parents. Probably not nearly quite so dramatic as this one. But maybe you can identify in some very small way about the impulse that's there. As Rochelle said quite rightly, this is not a story about what it means to be good sons and daughters. Turns out this is quite a despicable son. And maybe more despicable than you realize. And that's what's important as we begin to to tease out the threads of the story. When he puts in front of his father a request to receive his inheritance, that alone 
would have exploded with shame and disrespect in that society. You receive your candid way of saying, Dad, I wish you dropped dead. Kenneth Bailey, one of, one of this generation's great experts on Middle Eastern culture, said that in all of his readings of modern and ancient literature, he's never read anything that acts as a cultural explosive quite the way this story does. He goes on to say that, that everyone in the audience would have expected what would come next. The father would backhand his impudence. If not then, if not that, they would say the older brother will do the diplomatic peace shuttle between father and son and patch up this nasty family squabble, but wrong again. The father swallows his pride, takes the shame and the insult, and honors the request. Wealth in the ancient world, in the Middle East, and it's still this way today, wealth is land, not currency. It's land and it's honor. And this son is about to make off with both. To our amazement, the father gives him his share. That phrase there in verse 13 says, the son takes what he has. He got it together. That's a banking term. He got together. He collected up all of the money and he leaves. But how do you collect it up when it's not money? It's land. You can't take the land with you. He's headed for a far-off city. Again, in, in, in Jewish culture, the specific word there means a despised place. This is not an indication of geography or distance. It's far away geographically. It was far away religiously, culturally. This is far from home. This is a Gentile city. In order to carry his inheritance into this faraway foreign place, he's going to have to sell the land. So imagine a sequence of events that might go something like this. The younger son goes, Abe Suskovich. After all the usual pleasantries and greetings, he says, Mr. Suskovich, I have some land to sell. And what land is that? Mr. Suskovich replies. My inheritance, sir. Mr. Suskovich is agitated. Your father has died? Nobody told me of his death. Why didn't you tell me? I would have come over. I would sit shiva with you. We would have attended the funeral. No, 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 the the son says. Father didn't die. You see, I've asked for my inheritance right now. You mean the land that Moses left Egypt to inherit according to the promise of God? The land that Joshua led his people across the Jordan to conquer? The land that we have fought for and bled for and died for all our lives? You mean the land that your parents... And grandparents have given their very souls to nurture and develop. You're going to sell it? How much? Yeah. And so the deal is struck. The man takes his inheritance in cash. And then you notice the devastating slide of events. It happens in very rapid succession. He violates and insults the family, dishonors his father. He takes the most precious commodity in the ancient world, the promise of God, I will give you land, and sells it. He leaves the land of promise. He leaves his home to seek his fortune among the very tribes, the very group of people that the Jews, they fought against in order to build their home and their culture. How much further can he sink? But the story continues. Far away in this Gentile city, 
and we know that in the way that Jesus describes it, it means this is the place that he should not go. Young men, don't go here. He loses all of his money. He's such a failure that with the onset of famine, he winds up tending pigs. Kosher gathering. This is, this is not the right trade or trait for a good Jewish boy. He is far from home, far from faith, far from family, as far from his people as you can get. Again, your story may not be quite as dramatic as this. It may be that you have lived much of your life within the safe boundaries of what was expected of you. Have had the experience in our hearts of having to move out and having to lose or leave behind some of what we started out with. You can identify that in some small way. Maybe you can identify with this despicable son. This young man, humiliated and hungry and alone, starts to think about going home. And he faces a huge problem. You see, there's a custom, more than a custom, a mandate among people in that day and in that place. If a man loses his money, to the Gentiles, if he marries a foreigner or an immoral woman, the enactment of the Gesasa must take place. What is that? The townspeople will gather around him, will smash large pots, and then burn corn and nuts and deny him the right to enter. And I don't know what that looks like, but it doesn't sound good. It's a shunning. It's a right that the town would enact in response to the way that he had insulted his father and embarrassed his home and his people. And they wouldn't let him in. But this young man decides that, that the food situation is so bad, the conditions are so deplorable, that it's worth the risk. Now initially, maybe there's not a sense story. Is he really contrite? He's just hungry. He's alone. He might still be the same despicable son that you meet at the beginning of the story. But at least uh, he's thinking about home and he's hatching up a plot. He's working out the story. This is going to be the script. Here's the elevator speech for dad. First, he'll say, I've blown it. I've blown it. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I get that. So what is he going to ask? The language must be precise. He thinks through his options. I could be asked to be made into a bondsman, a doulos, but no, he rejects that. I could ask to be a slave, a pides, or a house servant, a diakonos. Hey, deacons, did you know that's what your title actually means, a house servant? No, 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 he rejects that too. Instead, he will ask his father to hire him back as a mistos, a skilled laborer. Put me on the payroll, Dad. As a skilled laborer, he could earn his way back into the good graces of his father and his family in the community. I don't know. You I mean he can sometimes feel the reaction of people to a situation, to a story, just by reading their body language. So I want you to imagine you're in that crowd with those four groups of people. Imagine their body language at this point in the story. You can see the tax collectors and the sinners just with their heads in their hands said, boy, he has got my number. He has got me figured out. And the Pharisees, trying hard to conceal a bit of a smile, 
Because they've been really disturbed up till now by Jesus' teaching. They believe that God loves you, yes, but he loves you when you live within the boundaries of his law. And Jesus, at least up until now, seems to be agreeing with his teaching. Maybe one of them can be heard to mutter to themselves, maybe we've been too hard on this rabbi, this man from Nazareth. Maybe he understands what real religion is like more. And again, less we're too hard on the Pharisees and the scribes. Isn't this kind of like what we believe too? I mean, honestly, don't, don't we really believe that God is keeping score? And if I end up with more points for doing good than doing bad, that God will love me. I mean, we don't say it, but we do rank stuff, don't we? That's so much And if I were to die today and stand before God and He asked, on what basis should I allow you into my kingdom? Wouldn't I want to see the cosmic charts, roll them out and let me run my finger up and down until I find my name and hope against hope that there's more pluses than minuses there? That's what the younger son believes. That's what everybody believed. That's why what happens next is so hard to believe. The story continues. Picture that moment when the father first identifies his son. He appears, him, appears there on the horizon. Now, as a farmer, the farms that they're living on don't look like farms in North America. Vast, open fields, maybe you know, surrounded by trees or, or, or one of those picket fences. No, everybody in that part of the world then and for the most part still today lives safely within compounds walled compounds. The farm, the village was inside walls. They lived in a time of of roving bandits and this was necessary for safety. And so maybe it's late in the evening, father's sitting out there on the porch, sipping his Starbucks, eating a bagel. And he glances along the fence line and, and there off in the distance, just through the gate, he spots someone. Can't make them out yet, but notices something about the way they walk. I recognize that walk, that, that particular gate. He gets closer. He comes into focus. It is my son. Boy, he needs a haircut. And here's where the story turns. And you can almost picture or hear the gasp in the crowd. What the father does next will appear to be completely unremarkable to us. It would be absolutely unexpected to them. To them, as the father sees his son approaching the gate. He knows what might happen if the townspeople get to him first. What's going to happen? That whole gasasa thing, fire and, and broken pots and and shunning. He's got to act quickly if he's going to prevent it. He's got to get there first. So look at verse twenty. What does he do? He runs. So what, we say? That's not an issue. He runs. People run. Men run. Men don't run in that world. And here's why. They don't wear this. They wear robes. Ever try to run in a robe? What do you have to do to run in a robe? You have to lift your robe. Men don't lift their robes. Men do not show their legs. Especially the most esteemed man, the patriarch, the father, the leader of the house. This again is a huge dilemma of shame and honor. 
So imagine this scene. Children playing in the streets are shocked to see this man of stature holding his robe up above his knees, embarrassing himself profoundly for the purpose of reaching the gate ahead of the townspeople. He arrives, he throws his arms around his son, and before his son can even get out his carefully rehearsed confession, before the townspeople can dishonor him, the father calls for clothes. Get him better clothes. And a party. We're going to celebrate. Before they can go get those those clay pots filled with corn and nuts and do the opposite. He himself profoundly in order to spare his son any further pain. When the son turns homeward, and the father reaches the family into good society, there are no words that are sufficient to grasp how, how beautiful and reckless and absolutely unexpected that gesture would have been. A simple response to love a son who in all of his actions had demonstrated himself unlovable. What triggered the father's response? I mean, think about it. Did the son undo his sins, the damage? No. Did the son offer to repay the lost land? No. Did the son repair the humiliation that his actions, his choices had brought on the father and the family? No. All he did was turn towards home. That's the gospel. And that's scandalous and beautiful. Regardless of my foolish choices, God the Father is waiting only for that for me to turn my steps homeward. Each of us at some point in our life has squandered our inheritance. Reputation, love, family, the, the gifts and abilities that we've been given, we, we've wandered off. Some of us have done it and nobody noticed. There are a few people as good as religious people at, at hiding that stuff and play-acting through it, but all God is waiting for is the moment that we turn towards home. But two decades ago, the editor of Christianity took a book entitled What's So Amazing About Grace. And he tells this story of a teenager that he got to know. It was a teenager who was living in Traverse City, Michigan. She thought as most teenagers do, that her parents are too old-fashioned and too strict. They reacted again and again to her choice of apparel, and one day when they critiqued her one too many times for the length of her skirt, she decided she'd had enough, and she left home. She ran far away, ending up in Detroit. On her second day in Detroit, she meets a man in a big flashy car, he seemed very nice, takes her for a ride takes her out for a fancy dinner. Later, he puts her up in a posh hotel, suggests that she might want to try a few pills they'd make her feel better. Two months pass. During that time, he teaches her what to do with men. They live together in a penthouse. And gradually, she forgets about her modest home back in Traverse City. I mean, one time she had a scare when she saw her picture on the side of a milk carton saying, have you seen this child? But the scare passed and time passed. 
And a year passed. And then the signs of illness began to show. And then she noticed that the man who used to be so nice to her had become ruthless. She had less and less money. She has to pay for her drugs. It was getting worse and worse. And eventually, when she was used up and no man wanted her anymore, he locked her out of the penthouse and said she'd have to find somewhere to sleep on her own. And now feeling again just like a little girl, lost and scared and alone, no money, she begins to think about home playing with the golden retriever in the backyard and chasing a ball. God, why did I leave? And she starts to ask that same question a hundred. She decides that more than anything else in life, even more than the next hit, she wants to go home. And so she hustles up a few quarters. And after three tries and, and phoning home to find nobody there, she finally leaves a message. She says, Dad, Mom... It's me. I was wondering if I could come home. I'm catching a bus. I'll be in at midnight tomorrow. If I don't see you at the station, I guess I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. seven hours, she's alone in the bus traveling through the darkness from Detroit to Traverse City. What if my parents never got the message, she wonders. Mile after mile, she begins to practice her own speech. And at last, they pull into the bus station. The air brakes hiss, and the driver shouts out, 15 minutes, then we move on. Next stop, Canada. This frightened young girl flips open her compact and wipes all the extra lipstick off, and then with her hands trembling, she walks out into the terminal. And there, standing on top of plastic tables, plastic chairs, are 40 of her brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, cousins, grandmother, all waving at her, wearing goofy hats and and blowing noisemakers. And across the wall of the terminal, on one of those old style computer printed banners the words her dad runs up to her and and she has time only to blurt out two words sorry dad and that's it hush hush darling we've got a big party waiting for you at home regardless of my foolish choices God is only ever waiting for that one moment when you turn your steps back towards home. Today could be that day. Some of you, you did it last Sunday, Easter Sunday. Praise God for that. If that wasn't you and you need to do it today, could be the day. You may be at a place of despair. The condition of your life has become so complicated, so disastrous, you wonder, are there any answers? There are always answers. The beginning is when you understand that regardless of the foolish choices and all the baggage you're trailing with you, God the Father is only looking for that, the moment that you turn towards home. Maybe for some of you, you feel like 
you've been walking in the wrong direction. You're walking away from faith or, or you're thinking about it. Would you listen maybe for a moment to the life experience of the son in this story and the, the girl from Traverse City? Maybe from some of the people who are here with you. And just for a moment, consider the enormous loss in living your life as if you mean nothing to God. You too can experience the love of God surrounding you without having to throw your life away. It all begins the moment you turn your steps towards home. And if you need to do that now, I'd be honored to lead you in prayer. Let's do that. Father, maybe on first reading the story didn't seem quite so scandalous as it does now. Maybe it felt kind of remote a long time ago. But it is about us, Lord. More importantly, it's about You. About a relentless love, a love that will not let us go. About a sacrificial love about a love that's scandalous in its scope and its beauty, about a love that waits only on a choice to turn towards home. And if there are those here today who need to do that, Lord, this moment is for them. Hear them as they whisper simply, God, it's been too long. I've been too far. I've tried to do it without you. And I've had enough. I need you in my life. Take it, take the broken pieces and out of my life, begin to make something beautiful again. I want to come home. Hear us as we pray and surround us with the warmth and the presence and the assurance of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name.